everyone, and welcome to another episode of Free the Bishops podcast. I'm Carmelite Quotes, your host, and joining me today is a guest. Today we have Caroline Cowan with us, a Latin American affairs expert, and it's good to have you with us, Caroline. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here today. To set the stage for our listeners today, we're going to talk about the Operation Nika Welcome. We celebrated on February 9, the one-year anniversary of 222 political prisoners being shipped, literally, in a passenger plane chartered by the United States, sending them to Washington, D.C., Daniel Ortega decided that all of the political prisoners were going to be expelled from jail, expelled to the United States, and as they discovered when they arrived in the United States, they had also lost their citizenship. So it was a bittersweet experience of freedom for them. And Caroline, who has joined us in the past on X, uh, in our X spaces there, formerly known as Twitter, she has specific experience with this group of 222. So we'll just launch right into it right now. Could you provide just a little bit more detail, Caroline, on the political climate in Nicaragua that led up to Operation Nika Welcome? Why did Rosario Murillo reach out to U.S. Ambassador at the time, Kevin Sullivan, and say, call the foreign minister. What can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yeah, so really it was a tense climate um, in Nicaragua and for those in exile already. Uh, the pre beforehand um, in about 2021, just before the repression had ramped up, the regime's repression, um, basically before the elections were set to take place. So a lot of the people involved in the elections and people that were not even involved in the elections um, were arrested and there were raids going on nightly. Um, and a lot of those that were imprisoned were, were detained during this time. Um, for participating or being around oppositional electoral activities. Um, for example, one was one person that was arrested for demanding religious freedom around that time. It was his second time imprisoned in, in uh, 2021. So this sort of was the lead up to um, the, the release of these prisoners. Um, and, you know, it was basically just a, a widespread repressive campaign that started again around this period of time, especially from 2022 to 2023. Um, there was, we've, you know, saw an increase in repression, harassment, surveillance, kidnappings, detainments, um, all sorts of things. So there, you know, the, re the regime was certainly starting to test things um, and, you know, the responses and the lack of responses are sort of what um, was going on during this ge geopolitical climate. It's, uh, it's really obviously a complex situation. You and I, um, I think both of us, have viewed the 
documentary from Race and Equality that was produced by um, the independent Nicar Nicaraguan media outlet called uh, Divergentes. You saw that, didn't you, the documentary? Yes, I did. Yes, yes. I it was, was at powerful. It was yeah. powerful. I was at an event where they showed the documentary at the Race and Equalities event last week, and it was powerful. And, you know, it you said the word that sort of surrounded that day, and I think that that can lead us into part of our discussion as well later, which is what the environment was like um, on the anniversary of the 222. And it was bittersweet. Um, it was, you know, they were, they were remembering their release, but they were remembering um, a lot of other things as well. So, so. Exactly, exactly. And, and the thing that I noticed uh, as I watched the documentary uh, from race and equality on the expulsion of the 222 prisoners and listeners, I, I will leave a link to this docu documentary in the Spotify website for our podcast so that you can watch it yourself. It's bilingual. If you speak English, you'll always be able to understand what's being said in Spanish. And if you speak Spanish, you will always understand what's being said in English as well. But the point of that documentary that I found so compelling was the fact that it outlined every step of the way what happened. And I think that uh, the whole concept of Nicaragua's regime deciding that they were going to get rid of these people and get them out of their hair, um, it marked, a, in my opinion, a really uh, benchmark moment in what's been happening that uh, they said, well, we've got to get rid of these people, we've got to get them out of here, as Ortega had said in November of 22, uh, let them go to the Imperio, to the, you know, the big empire, because that's where they belong anyway. And now we've seen that they're still using this uh, technique, this method, this policy to empty the jails of this or that prisoner, get them out of the country, take away their citizenship, banish them forever. And I'm wondering, you know, once the decision was made between Ortega and the USA to say, we're, we're sending you these, these prisoners. What were some of the major diplomatic challenges that were faced in Managua and were faced in Washington, DC? You and I know what some of those are. Can you explain them for our listeners? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, there were quite a few challenges, as you can imagine, um, with any not only political event um, and historical event, but, uh, you know, historical live event, I would say, but logistically, administratively, um, because you have to remember, you know, the U.S. government is involved, which is great, but this is this involves a lot of bureaucracy and logistical administrative challenges. Um, for example, one was just the quick mobilization that had to take place. Um, and so the group involved was a very small and closely coordinated team between those in Managua and those in D.C. Um, I believe Sullivan's team focused on, you know, a lot of the on-the-ground um, 
stuff in Managua with the Nicaraguan government and communication, and D.C. really focused on um, receiving the prisoners securely um, and safely and, and with dignity. Um, some people that were involved um, had ex well, they all had experience, but some people involved in particular had experience receiving, um, uh, I think it was 30,000 Afghan refugees um, in the past, and so, you know, they were, were dealing with a very experienced team, um, but again, they only had hours and days to do this. So um, another challenge, for example, was, uh, as I had mentioned, administrative um, and somewhat bureaucratic. Uh, the A lot of these people had visas, but many did not. There was one that was an American citizen. Um, and the biggest challenge, I think, would be the fact that there were a lot of moving pieces and people uh, and a lot of unknowns. And, you know, I think we have the privilege of being able to look back on this and see, like, oh, well, these are how all the dots connect, right? But at the time, not all this information was, was not everyone was aware of all of this information. Um, sure. It took communication and it took, um, it took a lot of preparation for unknowns. So I think the team on the ground here really, and, you, and we could see this um, once the prisoners arrived, they really prepared for a lot of these unknowns. So they responded to the challenges, which was, I think, really evident. One thing that I noticed in the documentary, uh, former Ambassador Kevin Sullivan talked about the absolute secrecy that surrounded this operation. Don't tell your partners, don't tell your wives, your husbands, uh, keep it, you know, really close to the vest. And to me, that is one aspect of this operation that was uh, fascinating because of the fact that they did not want one single leak to slip out about the operation. Do you think that they were concerned about um, Nicaragua pulling the plug on this idea? Yeah, I think there were probably a lot of concerns. Um, obviously the regime, you know, meaning what it was said it was going to do, um, but also just, you know, people finding out that shouldn't find out maybe and, and, and cause some sort of, again, logistical or administrative uh, uh, situation and and security situation which is is very intense on the ground um, for example and so um, a lot of the the classified information was was necessary yeah I can hear that you know um, what actually happened in Managua on February 9 uh, obviously was an intense moment. You and I know that uh, even on the ground by the gate, there were some concerns that everything could uh, fall apart, that there was uh, a, a close confrontation that uh, could have developed between one of the political prisoners and um, a police officer. And they were trying to get things moving and keep things moving so that there would uh, be absolutely no threat of Nicaragua saying, well, that's it, we're, forget, get back on the bus, everyone. Um, 
what what are you aware of in terms of some of those tense moments on the ground in Managua before wheels up? Sure. Um, you know, I think we know many of the same things, uh, I think, right now. But, you know, some of those include, um, you know, intense fear um, and shock, um, emotional reactions that, that were going to take place um, among the political prisoners. You know, they didn't know they were where they were going. They signed a document. Um, some of them cannot read and write. Um, and so, you know, the challenges there were were immense as well. But I think there was, once, once people knew where they were going, um, they were excited um, and, um, you know, then once they were on the plane, they started to figure out a little bit more. And then once they arrived, once they saw the U.S. government, a lot of them were friends with them or had known them in the, from the past. Um, and so they greeted them and, you know, they realized what was going on at that moment. But again, just like we spoke about a minute ago, I think the, you know, the emotions were just taking place as, as, a natural process was going on. And so for us, it, you know, it looks historical and, and monumental and it was, but it was also just a relief for some of these people to be on U.S. soil, to be alive, to be out of prison. That's right. You know, uh, there were some notable Nicaraguans who were on that flight. Uh, Felix Maradiaga, who is literally known worldwide uh, for his defense of human rights and his work um, in Nicaragua and outside of Nicaragua. Juan Sebastian Chamorro, who is now a fellow at Notre Dame University at the Kellogg Center, uh, he was on that flight. Also, another Chamorro was on that flight, and that's uh, Christiana Chamorro. And we can go down, you know, the full lineup. There were priests on the flight um, who had been arrested, you know, some a shorter period of time than others. There was one person who was not on the flight to the United States, and that was Bishop Rolando Alvarez. And people were looking for him, I noticed, um, as as the stories were told. Um, what can you tell us about the experience in Washington, D.C.? Because you were there at the hotel where the prisoners were taken, right? Yes, yes. Um, it was, you know, for me, um, as just a witness to it all, it was, you know, almost a privilege to see what was happening in that moment. Um, for many people, again, there was a human factor to it, just the relief of being out of jail, um, the the needs that were very human as well, you know, um, medical services, human services, um, food, uh, things like that that needed to be coordinated. And so, but, but, the, but the prisoners, we were all gathered together in this ballroom and the U.S. government had set up um, little sections of things that the anything that the prisoners that release prisoners may need um so you know immigration services paperwork on um work permits uh little uh makeshift 
tents for mass and confession. Uh, there was a cell phone station I worked on for a while um, and ran between Target and the cell phone station. There were um, a per diem uh, station. And so the, the U.S. government had thought about this event holistically um, and approached, I think, every element of it in that way. And so the prisoners really were able to get their needs met in these first 72 hours that are really critical after a crisis. Um, and so I, I was just astounded by the emotion and um, the, again, the human factor behind this that was happening and just impressed with the, the it was almost like a machine what the U.S. Had, government had set up in, in this ballroom, um, you know, for two, over 222 people because all of the uh, uh, staff and volunteers. So there were, I think, I believe I heard over 350 people in that room. So it was just truly incredible. It sounds like it was really well organized. You yeah. talk about the little stations uh, for different aspects of aid that the political prisoners from Nicaragua would need. And also, you know, the fact that they thought about the human factor, uh, having a, a little tent for mass and confessions. That's, that's so powerful. It was really powerful and needed, you know, everyone responds to um, crisis and shock differently. And I think they thought about that. Um, they thought of how individuals may be in need of praying. They thought of individuals might just want food. They thought of some people just wanting space. Um, they had one section for reaching out to family. Uh, and so they could actually start establishing, you know, what was going on with individuals that they had missed, you know, for all these months. That's great. You know, uh, a year now has passed since that day when the prisoners arrived in the USA, and uh, you're aware of some of the challenges that have uh, existed for these people in the 12 months uh, that have passed since February 9, 2023, now to 2024. Um, who's meeting their needs? Who's reaching out to them now? Yeah, you know, this is the challenge. The U.S. government is, is doing everything they can. You know, they've provided humanitarian parole which and work permits to all of them, so that, you know, allows them to work and to provide for themselves. Um, but you know, it can't do everything, and it should, it's not expected to, but there are things such as, you know, emotional, psychosocial support, um, financial support that, that, that the group needs to uh, work on themselves, and they are, um, but those are challenging challenges, you know. A lot of them don't speak English, um, and some are many many have to start over entirely from what they had previously done for example there's a lawyer who is in the maryland area um, that's now working with children and parents um, in a community-based uh, program uh, in spanish and so there are there are many ways that they're getting involved and adapting as best as they can but of course they're still suffering um, and grieving, you know, their homeland, um, 
that many of them have been reunited with their immediate families, but not their extended families. Um, they've lost their nationality, their property, you know, their livelihoods. And I think um, that's still something that they're facing. Um, and I, I know that there are NGOs and religious groups that are helping. For example, in the DC area, the Jesuits are uh, helping tremendously. And so I think, you know, the, the challenge is to keep up with the needs as they evolve and as time goes on. Um, a lot of times this is when people fall through the cracks and I think follow-up will be very important. That's so important. You're right in terms of who's going to be able to reach out, who will follow up, and um, how how the follow-up really makes a difference in the life of an individual. Um, some, some of the political prisoners now, a year out, some are doing better than others, I assume? Yes, yeah, some are. Um, and, you know, again, many have really connected and are starting to collaborate with their communities um, and, re and starting over and starting again, um, again, in different careers, different um, hobbies and, and things like that. Um, but then there are some that really are struggling. Um, and those, those people, I think, need the most help. Um, but also, I think that's the challenge is that a lot of this is, as I mentioned, emotional, um, psychological, uh, and, um, and time. You know, I think a lot of these people need time um, and a certain type of support. And so, obviously, there are ways to improve upon the support that, that they're not getting. And I think that's where um, the religious community in particular can really respond and help, not only with, as, as you and I have discussed in previous podcasts, prayer, but with, um, uh, you know, actual tangible technical support, helping out at their churches, um, you know, advising some of these communities, um, using their knowledge to connect with some of what some of the political prisoners, or at least political prisoners may um, have knowledge of and, and connecting on those deeper levels to try to uh, address what's going on. That's great. You know, you were at this uh, event over the weekend uh, that you mentioned just a few minutes ago. Tell us more about this uh, reunion or whatever kind of an event uh, you would call it. Yeah, sure. I, You know, again, the word you used in the beginning of the podcast, I think, um, rings true again here. And it was bittersweet and it was a celebration. And in, in, in many ways, there were people there um, that hadn't seen each other in a while. Um, there were uh, opposition members from uh, those in exile um, and other other people um, from exile in the diaspora. And uh, it was, but you know, it, it still was bittersweet in that um, we watched the documentary, which was very emotional, as you mentioned, and, and well done. And then we discussed it and. And everyone, it, you know, it was a reminder that everyone still has a story. Um, a lot of the um, panel was released political prisoners. One was a family member of someone who's still in prison. And so, you know, it was, it was happy, but it was a reflection of 
the situation that we're still in. As you mentioned earlier, this is a pattern now. Um, people are being jailed, and and so we have to think of the people that are in jail, and then the people that may be put in jail, um, and and the, as the pattern evolves. Exactly, I think that uh, it's a great concern, and that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast is so that the English speaking population can gain more detailed information from simple volunteers and activists like myself and Rosary Mum, but also to be able to hear from someone like you who has more on-the-ground experience in working with those who have been released and in being obviously aware and involved in Latin American affairs. I'm concerned that at this point in time, you talk about a pattern, a policy. My concern is that as the Ortega regime strengthens its ties with China in particular, and with Iran as well, that we're going to see uh, new aspects of repression, new methods of repression, and policies of repression, repressive and oppressive structure, develop within the regime. Do you have any sense of, of where that's headed? Yes, um, I, I agree with you. It's, it's very important and relevant. Um, I think there are uh, several threats here from um, the regime and its allies. As you mentioned, China, Russia is another one. Um, Russia is a scary one because it's providing uh, security uh, and military support. Um, and all of this really is, is a threat to not only the region and the democracy and, you know, within the region, but, but also a threat to the Nicaraguan people. Um, and, and I think this is the this is the part that we can really w raise awareness on. Um, as as you mentioned, the importance of this podcast is to raise awareness, you know, of English in, of English speakers, and um, I think those are the people that um, help with the policies, right, in the United States. And this is where um, pressure from the U.S. and from other countries could really be useful. Uh, increased pressure. There are there are things happening, of course, um, good things in terms of pressure on economic and diplomatic pressure on the regime. But but Russia, China, Iran, they are formidable um, adversaries. And so we're going to have to step up the response. Absolutely. I don't think uh, many people realize how Nicaragua is, to a certain extent, uh, the crossroads of the Western Hemisphere. And it's not necessarily the Panama Canal, it's Nicaragua, because the influence of Iran in the East, China in the East, Russia to a certain extent uh, to the West, and then of course, you know, the usual hangers on with uh, Cuba and Venezuela, but new 
dictatorships cropping up in the Western Hemisphere, I think it all spells a really um, worrisome, worrying situation that, that merits our concern. And I'm really glad that you've brought these points up. Uh, I hope that we can talk again in the future as uh, new developments occur, because you know more than the average bear, my friend. Um, well, thank you. I, you know, I've, I've been involved in this for quite some time, but it's, you know, it's great to be able to raise awareness. As, as we said, this is important and it's complex and, and we will always have something to talk about there. It will keep evolving. So people should be paying attention. Well, I really appreciate your time today. It means a lot, Caroline, to be able to share the truth about what's happening in Nicaragua to explain it clearly for our podcast listeners so that they can take action too and they can advocate not only for a free Nicaragua but especially for those aspects in Nicaragua, the population who are under such oppression, repression, threat today and of course this podcast is dedicated to informing folks about the anti-Catholic persecution in Nicaragua. And I think that uh, as we look at this situation, it's not only the total global aspect of what's happening there, but of course we're concerned about the church as well. So I want to say thanks again, and I hope that uh, we can continue this conversation. Yes, of course. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day, and thanks again, Caroline. Bye. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Before we conclude, we want to take a moment for prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord, we lift up in prayer all those who have suffered and continue to suffer for the cause of freedom and justice in Nicaragua. Bless and guide them on their journey to healing and restoration. We entrust to your mercy those who have risked their lives for the liberation of others. May your grace be a source of strength for them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Well, we're glad you were able to join us today for our conversation with Caroline Cowan. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can get notifications of our upcoming episodes. And if you found today's episode as compelling as I did, don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Hit that subscribe button. 
And catch us on your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeart. Wherever you listen, we're there to bring you these insightful discussions. So thanks for sharing, subscribing, and tuning in. So until next time, peace be with you, everyone.